0: Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. You see the Aboriginal man on the train. He's drunk. You can smell him from 10 metres away. And you think, why can't this man get his act together? And so you move to the other side of the train and, and pray that he doesn't come and make trouble your end. You're driving along Perry Street, wondering why the traffic is taking so long only to get stopped at King William Road by an Aboriginal rights protest. You think, why can't they get over it? It's history. You know what? They're just protesting for the sake of protesting. What they need is a real job. Or you're walking along OG Road and, and you see on the other side of a street a family of Aboriginal people. It's a cold day and you can't believe that the children are only wearing shorts and no shoes. You shake your head at the lack of parenting skills. Or you're celebrating Australia Day with your mates, but one of the girls doesn't come to your beach party because she's going to an invasion day Memorial service. And so you get into this argument saying, it's not my fault, it's not my responsibility, I wasn't there. You know what? That's just a fact of civilization. They should be thankful that they're not living in huts and get education and healthcare. These attitudes are all too common. And whatever we feel towards these people, the reality is that the wounds of history are still raw. And statistics will show an ongoing disparity between the well-being of Aboriginal Australians and non-Aboriginal Australians. Today, Aboriginal people represent 3.3% of the Australian population. Yet between 2014 to 2016, Aboriginal children aged 0 to 4 were more than twice as likely to die than non-Aboriginal children. An Aboriginal person, both male and female, will live on average 10 years less than non-Aboriginal people. Despite only being 3% of the Australian population, Aboriginal people are 50% of the nation's suicides, and this statistic really grieves me. 80% of youth suicides. 80% and 50% of youth detention. And these are only a snapshot of the frightening statistics, including unemployment, school dropout rates and deaths in custody, There is a deep wound in the spirit of our nation, an unfinished history of great injustice. If there are any people groups that could fit under the category of the least of these, my brothers, heard in the Bible reading tonight, surely many of our Aboriginal brothers and sisters are hungry and thirsty, strangers in their own land, shamed, sick, and in prison. How does such inequality happen? How did we get here and why doesn't it seem to be going away? Well, to understand the present, we must look to the past. To love and care for the marginalized, we must first listen and understand their story, their scars, and their generational wounds. And when we look at the wrongs of people from the past, it should move us to examine our own worldviews and attitudes. Our walk tonight with a giant of the past is much closer to home. On the very soil we stand and live on, a history that shapes our present. The last four weeks, we've endeavoured to share stories of men and women of faith in light of Hebrews 12, the great cloud of witnesses that surround us, that inspire us to run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The giant of faith tonight was a man caught up in Australian history who by faith chose to speak out against injustice. This giant of faith, just a footnote on the pages of history, lesser known to many, perhaps I would argue fits more neatly in the endnote of the hall of faith written down in Hebrews 11. In the book Hebrews 11, it starts with the likes of Abraham and Moses and David. But if you turn the page, the writer finishes with a mention of those who are suffering, suffering mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. It's recorded they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Tonight's Giant of Faith is not a story with a happy ending. There's no money parcel that miraculously lands on his doorstep. There's no revival that breaks out, nor a political overthrow of national injustice. Rather, tonight is a story of a stubborn, broken, imperfect, weak and sick man. But it's a story I believe worth telling, an illustration and an example for us of a person who believed and very much lived out God's word to be ambassadors of Christ, as we heard tonight in in the reading. As if God was making his appeal through us, a man compelled, controlled by Christ and his gospel convictions to reach a marginalized people at whatever cost to himself and his own comforts. It's a story of self-denial, of sacrificial love, of care for the very least, who many considered to be no more than animals. A story that will inspire us to consider how the gospel shapes and drives us to self denial in the face of weakness, opposition, abandonment, and failure. It's the story of the full bearded, bespectacled clergyman, the Reverend John Brown Gribble. Shall we pray together as we remember? Uh, how God has moved in the past. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, I pray that uh, you would move in our hearts tonight uh, to consider how the gospel shapes our life. Uh, and we pray this, that, um, yeah, that you would make a difference in this world uh, through us, your church, for your glory, we pray. Amen. Now tonight I owe much of Uh, The story and research um, to John Harris's wonderful work, uh, One Blood, as well as the Australians Together movement and website, both of these resources, I would highly recommend if you want to pursue this more. But to help frame the narrative tonight, I feel it necessary to mention a couple of things. Tonight's story is about John Gribble, a white man. But in no way do I wish to let the stories of the countless Aboriginal men and women be the background. This is their story. This is their story of courage and for many faith and hope too. Secondly, it's worth understanding the nation, uh, so the notion of what missions were. See, we can often tie negativity to missions because of the great institutional abuses uh, that occur, but not many will realize why many of these missions began in the first place. For the majority, the missions began as places of protection, particularly for women as a result of the extensive traffic and rape of many helpless Aboriginals by white colonists. Naturally, these missions sought to share the love and care of Jesus and his gospel with them too. Now, I do not wish to justify what happened or presume that all the Christian missionaries were innocent. But I do want to make this caveat first, that it's worth distinguishing between the early establishment of why these missions existed to the later takeover by the government and and the, the policy of assimilation of the Aboriginal people. Now, connected to this wrong application of the gospel of Christ by many European colonists was the confusing of Christianity with white civilization. For many, when they speak of sharing Christ, counter to God's word of reaching the nations in the name of Jesus, they sought to evangelise a message of white Western ideals. You see, to be Christian, for many, was synonymous with dressing a certain way, speaking English, eating certain foods, going to church in the proper buildings. In other words... Being European, there's this missionary, Samuel He wrote in 1826. From us, they have suffered infinite loss. From us, they have contracted the most painful and fatal diseases under which many of them hourly suffer until death relieves them. And from our example and excitements, they are sunk into the deepest moral corruption in every respect. I conceive as a nation professing Christianity, we have much to answer for on their account to the judge of all the earth. It's upon this backdrop that I want to tell you the story of John Gribble. Soon after his birth in 1847, Gribble and his family emigrated to Australia. Gribble spent his early years growing up in Geelong, and it was first here that he encountered the Aboriginal people. Once separated from his parents and lost... It was an Aboriginal woman who found him, gave him food and cared for him and returned him to his parents. Gribble wrote this in his diary. "'It is not to be wondered at then that I should be led to love the natives who in my childhood had shown me such kindness. I was led to admire the native nobility and genuine kindness of the blacks of Victoria. As Gribble grew up, so too did his pity for them grow.' Noticing more year after year the terrible wrong upon which they were subjected. Upon his conversion at fourteen, Gribble made the decision then to dedicate his life to the preaching of the gospel. At age twenty-one, he married Mary Ann, and he kept to his uh, kept to his decision. And at twenty-nine, he became an itinerant preacher, sharing the gospel around northern Victoria and southern New South Wales. And this led to his first resident position as a clergyman in a town called Geraldoree. Now, Gribble was no pushover of a clergyman. To give you a sense of the kind of man this, uh, this was and his stubborn willingness towards justice, I want to tell you a story of an encounter between John Gribble and the infamous Ned Kelly and his gang. It was the year 1879. Ned Kelly and his infamous gang of miscreants had held up the little town of Geralderee in western New South Wales. Little did they know that a mile out of town, at first unaware, lived the full-bearded missionary John Gribble. Upon his discovery of the town's predicament, Gribble went into town to see what he could do to help, only to be met by a distraught girl. One of the Kelly gang members, the surly and ill-tempered Steve Hart, had stolen her horse And so Gribble proceeded into town to find Ned Kelly, who himself happened to be riding the stolen girl's horse. And so Gribble said to Kelly, don't you know it's unmanly to steal from a girl? (laughs) Kelly couldn't believe the insolence of this man. But he said he would consider returning her horse. Satisfied, Gribble left. Only this time to stumble upon Steve Hart himself, this time in the act of stealing a stealing a saddle. Despite Hart's wielded revolver, Gribble told Hart that he had told Kelly of his unmanly act. And so Hart pointed his revolver at Gribble and after some argument, took his watch. Now, Gribble wasn't too fond of having his watch taken, so he went into town to find Kelly, this time drinking at the local, local hotel. Standing stoic on the dusty street of Ree. Gribble shouted to the Bush Ranger to come out and give back his watch. <laughs> John Harris writes this. For a brief moment, two men of courage stood face to face. Maybe they saw a bit of themselves in the other. Well, Kelly gave Gribble his watch back, and Gribble bowed to the Bush Ranger before they went on their separate paths to the great ordeal of their lives. This was Gribble's beginnings. Now, Gribble lived relatively comfortably in Gerald apart from the occasional encounter with Ned Kelly, and it was here that he began to witness the deplorable conditions under under which the Aboriginal people lived. Worst of all, what he deemed to be the traffic in the blacks, referring to the prostitution and slave labour of many Aboriginal people by white colonists, with many, if not most, believing that Aboriginal people were a dying race and useful only for labour. By 1878, Gribble became firm in his resolution to provide a place of care for Aboriginal people. He writes this in his diary. He was deeply impressed with the wretched conditions of the poor, unfortunate Aborigines. They are here in large numbers, utterly uncared for. Cannot something be done for their present comfort and eternal good? I think so. Gribble decided to take his ministry leave to visit Our a couple, Daniel and Janet Matthews. Now, the Matthews were another couple that spoke out and acted against the Aboriginal plight, buying land and setting up a place of refuge called Maloga. It was here that Gribble and the Matthews developed a friendship and admiration for one another. Now, the Matthews and Gribble toured the Murrumbidgee River, and it was on this trip that Gribble decided he should commence a mission there. This is what Gribble wrote. I am well aware that the work will involve much self denial and hardship. But the love of Christ constraineth me. And I would simply enter upon the work, trusting to the faithfulness of Him who has said, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Self denial. In the face of injustice, Gribble chose not to harden his heart or to turn a blind eye. He first asked what can be done and then resolved to do something. He was spurred on by the example of his Christian brother and sister, Daniel and Janet Matthews. And then he took seriously the words of Jesus. As much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. You see, he he understood the love of Christ the very same gospel that we profess, and it was that which controlled his heart. Yes. Amen. The love of Christ constraineth me or controls me. You see, he knew the cost to himself, he was well aware, he said, much self-denial. But you see, his comfort or his personal his comfort or his personal career didn't control him. Christ's love controlled him. This is the message of Christianity that transcends culture. Christ died for the spiritually dead to make them alive. A new creation with changed motivations. What a challenge and example for us to consider what controls you. In the face of our brothers and sisters suffering all around us, what might we do? Not just assenting to, but living and believing this gospel of salvation. Knowing the love that Christ has shown us, ask, what can be done? Then do something. The cry of Jesus, caring for others, sharing the good news, will mean denying yourself and your own comforts. Changing our posture and our attitude to, why can't they get over it? To let me hear your story. How can I love you and care for you? Because we have been made ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation. So Gribble wrote this. I resigned my charge, a very comfortable and profitable one. And to the utter amazement of our old friends, we left the town of Geraldoree with our little belongings. Gribble set to work to establish a mission on the Murrumbidgee River. In collaboration with Aboriginals Joni Atkinson and Bagot Morgan. From the very outset, they experienced problems from white colonists. In fact, the land department also cautioned them not to proceed, forcing Gribble to travel to Sydney to persuade the authorities in the face of all the complaints. What was an absolute miracle, Gribble actually received approval, and not only that, uh, but was appointed to be a teacher uh, with a salary. And so around the fireside one evening, Gribble and his new Aboriginal friends chose the name for the mission. Commanding the Wiradjuri word for camp, Warang, and the Hebrew word meaning house of mercy, Bethesda, they named the mission Warangesda. For a season, the mission saw great fruit and success becoming a place of faith and hope. Gribble wrote, in ways most wonderful, God interposed for us in every season of one and cheered our hearts with assurance of his favour and guidance. Now, we want to admit, Gribble's ways by modern standards were not perfect. In fact, he was quite stubborn and a strict man. But his heart to do justice and love, mercy and care for others couldn't be questioned. Despite the strict discipline on the mission, Gribble was very popular with the Aboriginal people. Some of the first of these were Rowley, a reformed drunkard, Joanna, a 12-year-old Wiradjuri girl, and Eliza Nelson, who said this, I no longer fear death because Jesus is with me. The backlash from the community, however, never subsided. On one occasion, a station hand rode in, waving a stirrup iron and threatening to kill anyone who came near him, giving Gribble a fortnight to close the mission. On another occasion, a case of gin was sent in to get the women drunk so that the mission would shut down. Gribble writes, For the first two years of our mission... For the first two years of our mission life, the main difficulties we had to encounter were from, were from the white man's horrible passions. Yet God was good in this season of Gribble's life, and tangible change was seen in Darlington Point, once a disgrace of this district. Gribble sums up the work at Warren like this. From the commencement of our work at Warren our great end and aim ...has been to enlighten the minds of the poor blacks upon the great truths of the gospel. Pervading all our temporal efforts, there has been the desire to reach the inner feelings of their souls. We have endeavoured, in season and out of season, to win them to Him who is able to save to the uttermost. And rejoice in the knowledge that the gospel of Christ has proved itself to be the very power of God unto salvation. Even in the case of those whom so many regard as little more than animals... Several of our people have been brought to the saving knowledge of the truth. Some of them are still with us, adorning the doctrine of God their Saviour, while others, after witnessing a good confession, have peacefully and hopefully passed away to be ever ever with the Lord. In the face of sacrifice and opposition, Gribble denied his own rights and his own comforts for the sake of those society had rejected. And sadly, it would take a very sad toll on Gribble's mental health and uncover a great weakness that would burden him for the rest of his life. From great heights of success to the pits of despair, too many of us know the irrationality and the unreasonableness of depression. Despite things going really well around us, the mind tells a different story. A dark story, a prison of negative thoughts. Perhaps some of you have experienced this or are experiencing this. Gribble's mental and physical condition continued to deteriorate and so it was arranged for him to take a voyage to England in the hope that he would recuperate from his depression and and refresh his soul from serving at Warren Returning from England, unfortunately, not much changed. His diary entry in March 1885 attest to this mental condition. He says, very ill at ease this morning. Mad with myself and everyone else. My nerves are in an awful condition. Must leave this place. It is a certainty that I can't stand it. I am all unhinged again, just as bad as I was before I went to England. You see, Gribble was, by every stretch of the word, a weak man. And it's a reality check for for a series on giants in the faith. Because ultimately, we are not celebrating man's accomplishments, but the power of God to use even or especially the broken to bring about his will. You see, as well as suffering from depression, Gribble's direct confrontational and uncompromising style made him few friends. He continually berated himself for what he perceived as failures, blaming his own lack of faith and lapsing from time to time into what he calls his fearful mental condition. I think it's a reminder to us, perhaps an encouragement, that it is not great people that change the world, but weak ones in the hands of a great and powerful God. You see, despite his weakness, to the end of his life, Gribble never lost his anger at the mistreatment of the Aboriginal people, nor his willingness to do something about it. Despite our weakness, our depression, our poverty, our anxiety, our sinful failings, we entrust ourselves to a God who is able to save to the uttermost. We entrust ourselves to a God who calls us to come and die, only to gain the life and joy of the Father and our hope of restored bodies for eternal life. And so Gribble handed on the responsibility of and discern God's call to move once more. In 1885, Gribble was invited by the Bishop of Perth to start a new mission in the Gascoyne River, a uh, thousand kilometres north of Perth. And so his wife and his children packed their belongings and boarded the train to the next chapter of their lives, unaware of the fiery trials, trials that lay ahead. A taste of what was to come was met on his journey. Gribble writes this. Dr. Rogers of Albany told me that it was his candid opinion that a black fellow was not susceptible to the higher influences of Christianity, and I told him that I had done with him. (laughs) Another gentleman commented, he thought the Aborigines were very little better than monkeys, and I told him he himself was certainly not much superior than a monkey. At (laughs) that, he threatened me seriously bodily, bodily harm. See, the Church of England Mission Committee in charge of his placement were impressed with Gribble's work in New South Wales because it largely involved rehabilitation of those suffering disease or seeking refuge, and they expected him to do the same in WA. Their expectation was that Gribble's presence in WA was only to be tolerated if he would limit it to conducting religious services and the tending of the sick and elderly discarded Aboriginal workers. However, things were much worse, worse in the Northwest, with wide-scale forced labor and oppression of the Aboriginal people. Indeed, Gribble's gospel convictions compelled him in a way that would cause friction, for it didn't take long for Gribble to assess the injustice and the oppression and chose to speak out. The forced labor system saw Aboriginal people run down and captured. They were forced to touch the pen which marked the assignment papers, papers of which they couldn't read, thus legally binding them to their employers. What particularly angered Gribble was that women and girls were assigned to single white men in this way. For what purpose is clear? If the Aboriginal people ran away, the police were informed and a warrant issued for their arrest. They were then technically fugitives, from the law, and could be and were shot for resisting arrest. When arrested, prisoners were chained at the police station, often for weeks pending trial. Here's what Harris writes. Gribble saw them himself at Junction Bay Police Station, naked, cold, hungry, and chained both neck and ankle. Such chained prisoners were not yet proven guilty, and chained together with them were witnesses as well as suspects. He saw and heard of even worse practices, including the torture of recaptured runaways. And so Gribble commenced construction of the mission on the north bank of the Gascoigne River, about four kilometres from the town, with the help of only two handicapped Aboriginal men, and he called it Galilee. His first confrontation with the white partialists occurred when an Aboriginal runaway sought refuge on his mission, the supposed owner came in pursuit to be confronted like Gribble did with Ned Kelly and Steve Hart. His life on the line for the sake of justice told them the blacks were free subjects of the Queen. They are not slaves. As you can only imagine, the town didn't take too kindly to this and opposition grew. Public meetings were held in Carnarvon in which Gribble was attacked and a petition sent to the missions committee calling for his withdrawal. A letter to the paper, The West Australian, in 1886, stated, It must be clearly understood that we positively refuse to acknowledge the Reverend Mr. Gribble or any other person that will interfere or tamper with our servants, and we respectfully request the removal of the Reverend Mr. Gribble from the district. You'll note the careful use of the word servant, despite the reality of their true nature. And so subsequently, Gribble could no longer obtain his supplies in the town, and there were calls for him to resign. Opposition many times even turned physical. Yet this wouldn't be his greatest battle. Perhaps most tragic of all was the abandon of him by the Church of England, swayed by the pressures of influential members, including and especially those who owned the West Australian paper. An article in The West Australian on 26 August 1885 argued that missions removed Aboriginals from the labour force and that if missions had any value at all, it was to teach the value of obedient, steady and intelligent toil. Gribble was told he would require tact and understanding of the relative position of whites and blacks. As Harris writes, tact, however, was not a virtue which Gribble cultivated, nor was he inclined to accept the relative position of whites and blacks. And so Gribble wrote to the papers in objection. He wrote to the papers to say that's wrong, only to be condemned by the missions committee itself for speaking out. And so Gribble's resolve hardened. He says this, I shall make it my mission to reveal to the Christian world the wrongs and injustices and the cruelty obtaining under the British flag in the colony of Western Australia. Subsequently, Gribble was forbidden from preaching in Carnarvon. And later in June, Gribble was refused permission to preach anywhere in Perth. And some church officials actively sought his resignation but Gribble continued to record what he was witnessing. He writes, Even in Australia, under its sunny skies, deeds, the most dark and horrible in their nature, have been committed and are still being practiced. And the hypocrisy of the religion in Australia was not lost on him. Uh, the bishop's commissary withdrew Gribble's missionary license, and the missions committee ordered the Gascoigne mission to be closed. It had hardly even started. The church, wrote Gribble's son Ernest, finally abandoned the attempt and also abandoned my father. Gribble's resolve to make known and speak out for the least of his brothers, the Aboriginal slaves, would lead him to one last battle. In August of 1886, the West Australian called Gribble a lying, canting humbug. In other words, a liar and an idiot for all his noise about the aboriginal plight. Now Gribble, believing that he had sufficient support, sued the paper for defamation. Supporting his family by loading bricks and chopping firewood, Gribble awaited the long-delayed court case. The lawsuit dragged on and on and became a test of the power of the influential elite of Western Australia. The evidence at the trial was highly incriminating, revealing widespread mistreatment of Aboriginals as mere property. The Gascon pastoralists believed, they admitted, they, they were entitled to special privileges as a superior race and class, describing the circumstances as simply the natural order of things. In June 1887, Justices Onslow and Stone, before an overflowing courtroom, Found in favour of the West Australian. The newspaper had been true, according to this court ruling. It was just and accurate in calling Gribble a lying, canting humbug. And so the West Australian exulted that every son of Western Australia will rejoice that Gribble's foul career of slander has at last been effectively barred by the unanswerable command the Supreme Court. Without any money and unable to pay his legal costs, Gribble left Western Australia a broken man, destroyed by corruption and evil working against him, another victim to join the thousands of Aboriginal slaves just unjustly tossed to the sides of of society. Gribble never fully recovered from his ordeal and in 1892 he cashed in his life insurance policy and at his own expense, traveled to North Queensland and selected the site of what was to be the Arab mission, his last legacy. Within a few months of moving to Queensland, Gribble became seriously ill. On the 3rd of June, 1893, John Brown Gribble died. His funeral sermon was given by an Aboriginal Christian, a guy called Martin Simpson, who preached on Isaiah 37, verse 4. Lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left. On his tombstone in Sydney's Waverley Cemetery are inscribed the words, in loving memory of the Reverend John Brown Gribble, founder of the Warren Gesder Mission and the Blackfellows Friend, who fell asleep June 3rd, 1893, aged 45 years. God is love. A giant had fallen, weak, opposed, abandoned. For all his might and voice in WA, little can be said changed. It was not until after Federation in 1901 that there was a Royal Commission into the treatment of Aboriginal people in WA. The Royal Commission exposed the cruel and inhumane treatment, making mention of the trafficking, slavery, sexual abuse and police brutality. Now, many regarded the commission's report as vindication of Gribble's charges. The commissioner himself wrote to Mary, Gribble's wife, saying that his findings exonerated her late husband and that Gribble's statements had proven true. So he was a man who lived his gospel convictions, choosing to befriend those society rejected. To befriend those society rejected sounds a lot like the Lord Jesus Christ and his willingness to friend the sick and the outcast. Just before his death, Gribble says this. I have given my life and substance to befriend the black man of Australia. I've walked hundreds of miles for his benefit and endured many hardships that I might serve him. I've sacrificed my worldly interests for his good, but oh, I don't regret it. Would that I had 50 lives that I might spend in such service. You see, John Gribble was expected to just provide a church service on a Sunday. But Gribble did not ever see the gospel as consistent with standing by and failing to speak up against injustice and oppression. Gribble's gospel convictions... That as much as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me, that the love of Christ constraineth me, led him to the northwest of Australia where he championed the Aboriginal victims of brutality, confronting the pastoral lobby, the press, the judiciary, and the government of Western Australia, suffering defeat and dying a broken man. Because he believed the gospel of self-denial, whatever the cost, Now, I wonder for you today, where will your convictions lead you? Perhaps like Greg and Linda Wilson, we had the joy of seeing her and seeing um, these guys in Sydney and just the encouragement of their faithfulness to care for those who are suffering. It led them to to Derby and WA to support the church there and provide parental guidance for hurting mothers. And maybe the gospel will lead you too to befriend our Aboriginal brothers and sisters suffering inequality still today. Perhaps you will lead the church to speak out against slavery in the pornography industry or the injustices in the treatment of our refugees. What will it cost you? What are your expectations? For Gribble, it meant opposition, failure, weakness, abandonment. But should that surprise us? Didn't our Lord and Saviour say it would be so? Our Christian hope was never in the comforts of this world. So let the love of Christ move you tonight towards love and justice that we might be his ministers of reconciliation for the glory of Christ, hoping not in our own comforts today, but trusting, trusting in the all-sufficient. It's sufficient. We don't need anything more. That We have the hope of eternal life. Restored bodies. I want to uh, read for us the passage from Hebrews as I close, and I want to invite you to close your eyes. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, So that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Our God and Father, we praise you tonight that our hope is not in the comforts of this world. Lord, I praise you for the faithfulness of those who have gone before us and the example that's been set. Lord God, I pray that you might pour out your spirit here, that you would raise up us to be the generation, that we would be ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors. Lord Jesus, you've been so kind to us by your love and your acceptance of us. I pray that you'd move us to show the same love and acceptance and care for those around us. Lord, I pray that it would be your love that controls us, that our motivations would change, that you might And move us to be on mission wherever we are. Because, Father, we need you. We know that we're weak and broken people. But our hope is not in our bodies. Our hope is not in our own performance. But our hope is in Jesus Christ and the eternal life that he's laid before us. Father, I pray for our Aboriginal brothers and sisters. And we repent of... of, um, the sins against them for hundreds of years and even today, uh, the attitudes that we can have. Lord, I pray for your mercy and your kindness to be shown to them. We thank you for the many Aboriginal brothers and sisters who are following you and uh, who are are leading the way in many ways. And uh, God, I pray that uh, you might um, restore the inequalities, that you might be glorified. We know that that is your heart. And would you move us, Lord, to care for the least of these We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.